The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. Now for Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about complaining the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, thank you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you that we're all gathered here this morning to worship you, God. Thank you for this beautiful account of um, a very touching um, message that Paul has to share with the church, God. I pray in this moment that you would take away any distractions, any idols, whatever it is that might be hindering us from seeing the truths that you have for us here. Lord, I pray that we would draw closer to you and that your spirit would be among us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thank you, Janie. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Randall. If I haven't met you yet, uh, pastor of Grace City. And uh, this morning, we're going to continue in the book of Acts. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there to Acts 20, 17 through 38. Um, and as we've been looking through the book of Acts, we've seen uh, the early church, how the early church started, what God was doing in the midst of his people. And uh, we get to this, this place in the life of Paul, which... Um, the author Luke sees it as very important. 
a very important part of his ministry. It's one of those points where uh, it's the, the farewell uh, to the people here. And so uh, we get this account. It's a very intimate account of, of what's happening. We get to, to listen in and hear the heart of Paul here. Um, and what does he share? What's the thing that, that's important to Paul if this is the farewell for him? What is so important that he has to share with the people? It's the signs of a godly leader. It's the signs of a godly leader. And so if we're thinking about why, why does godly leadership matter? Well, in August of 2021, uh, author and counselor Chuck DeGroat uh, wrote an article entitled uh, Narcissic, Narcissistic Leadership in the Church. And one of the things that he talks about is uh, he's a counselor and he's done research about why is it that, that narcissistic leaders are led to, to lead churches. Um, and here's what he writes. He says, years ago as a pastor, I was uh, stung by the bite of a narcissistic church leader. The bite led to bitterness before it led to healing. A few years later, I found myself in the daunting role of an assessor of church planters Seeing the warning signs in the early 2000s of what would become a, a church culture seemingly addicted to platform, influence, success, power, and relevance. Even in those early days, I'd hear the language of narcissism floated. Uh, my concern was growing. People were hurting. Lay leaders were confused. In a popular podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, uh, producer and director uh, Mike Cosper notes the tendency in, in recent decades to choose giftedness in church leaders at the expense of character. He tells stories of young gifted leaders who rose to power in settings as diverse as sprawling Southern California, urban Seattle, and the Chicago suburbs. Armed with bold visions, compelling personal stories, and a seemingly relentless desire to succeed, these gifted young leaders would lead flocks of thousands in some cases, young and influential leaders were rising to prominence in their 20s. Absent accountability, mentoring relationships, seminary training, communities of care. A rise of power and prominence without deep spiritual discipleship and formation. In time, those uh, confused by the tactics, personality, even the abusive tendencies of the leader are faced with the question, how can someone so gifted and influential do such harm? Being a pastor now for 16 years, going through an assessment myself, uh, and now kind of being on the other side of assessing some young leaders and church planters. One of the things that I saw in the early days of church planting was that there was this tendency to look towards a giftedness or an ability over character, over biblical qualifications. More about leadership capacity than about spiritual maturity. What is Paul saying here to the people in Ephesus? He's telling them something that's true then and is true today. That there are those who will creep into leadership positions and their intention isn't to point to Jesus, but it's to point to themselves. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and Titus 1, 6 through 9, 
give us what the qualifications would be for a biblical leader, specifically an elder, what we'd say a pastor is. See, and we live in a culture today that very loosely uses the term pastor, throws out pastor of this, pastor of that. But the Bible is very specific about what a pastor should look like, about the life of a pastor, a leader, an elder. And friends, I'm accountable and all of us who, who hold that title of pastor are responsible to the living God when it comes to how we live. See, one of the things in our church is that we don't divert from what 1 Timothy 3 and, and Titus 1, 6 through 9 talk about. Friends, as we've looked and, and, and over the years, the church grown to a point where now we are, we are working with and, and training a group of, of elders, it's been a long process. It's been a years-long process. It's been a vetting process. Why? Because what Paul is saying today is that this is extremely important. And there are people's lives that are at stake. People that are hurt every day. Some of us walking around with church hurt because there hasn't been a very meticulous view when we talk about leaders. When we talk about leaders. And so the text today is Acts 20, 17 through 38. And, and what we've seen is that the book of Acts is filled with sermons and speeches. But this one is unique because it's addressed to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. You see, this is a farewell message that's preparing the leaders for the future without Paul. Paul was someone that they loved, they respected, they looked to for guidance and discipleship. But there was a point in the Ephesian church where they had to move on from just Paul. And so Paul is giving them this farewell speech and, and really guiding them and helping them. I remember when I got to the point in my family where my grandfather, who I looked up to, I love, respected. The day where I remember, it was, I, I knew it, it was going to be the last day that I saw him. And so I was sitting by his bedside, reading scripture with him, gleaning from him as much wisdom as I could. See, this was my farewell to my grandfather as he was passing away from cancer. And you think about what, like, what is it, what is it that we do with those moments? Because this was a moment. That for me was a moment. For you, you have moments. What do you do with those moments? When you're sitting there, knowing that this is the last time. In Acts 18, 23, Paul set out from Antioch on his third missionary journey. He traveled through um, Galatia and Phrygia, uh, which is modern Turkey. He strengthened the church that he had planted on his first journey there. And then we get to Acts 19, 1, which we've looked at. He arrives in Ephesus. Um, and later he says in Acts 20, 31, that he stays there or spent time there for around three years. So Paul had given three years of his life in this community. Now, during those years, uh, God worked miracles. Uh, people's lives were changed. The community was transformed. 
Paul eventually leaves after a riot, uh, which we've talked about in Acts 19, um, and heads to Macedonia. So if you weren't here last week, you can listen to what happened in that account in Acts uh, 19. But he goes down into Greece, uh, spends about three months in Corinth, and so we, we, probably, we know Corinth from uh, the book of Corinthians, right? First and second Corinthians, so he spent some time there. And while he was in Corinth, um, he possibly wrote the book of Romans there. Uh, he then heads back through Macedonia, sails uh, south, and passes by Ephesus. Um, he was on a urgent journey. He wanted to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. And so he talks about that in uh, Acts 20, verse 16. But he has one of those moments where he's on his way, he's journeying along, and he has to turn around. He, he has to stop. He, he's passed by that community in Ephesus, and we don't know what it is. It doesn't say, but probably the, the memories of the people that he, he lived with for those three years, the, the relationships that were built there, the, the memories of what God had done had probably been just going on in his mind, and he just tells the uh, captain of the ship, please stop the boat, pull in here. And so what he does is he stops about 20 miles south of Ephesus in Miletus, and what he does is he sends for the elders of the church. And so we talked about that, the pastors, um, plural, the pastors of the church in Ephesus. Um, now, there are two words that he uses here specifically about these leaders, um, and he uses them interchangeably. Um, the word uh, presbyteros is used here, which talks, is used elder. Um, but then he uses the word episkopos in verse 28, which means overseer. Um, another word in scripture that's used for pastor is the word poimen. Um, and so we see it all used interchangeably, but all, it, all of it points to this role of pastor, this role of leader, this role of elder. Okay, so it's, it's all used interchangeably there. Um, Defining the role of elder, Alexander Strzok writes, if we want to understand Christian elders in their, in their work, we must understand the biblical imagery of shepherding. As keepers of sheep, New Testament elders are to protect, feed, lead, and care for the flock's many practical needs. And so what is a pastor to do? Is it to be on a platform? Is this, is this what my main responsibility is? No. But it is to help, it's to serve, it's to be there for the people in the, in the church. That's what the role of elder is. It's to protect, it's to help, it's to serve. Acts 20, verse 28, Paul says this to the leader. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. What he's saying is this. Even though you have a title of pastor, even though you have, you're an elder, you're not above anything else that anybody else in the church is susceptible to. Take a watch on yourself, right? But also, watch over care for the people in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Did, did you choose that role? No, God did. God put you in that role. You didn't put yourself there. Here's the thing. I didn't call myself to be a pastor. God called me to be a pastor, right? There's a calling that happens in the life of a leader that they're set apart for this. God appoints them into this position to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Do you hear that at the end there? Who bought it? Whose church is it? It's Jesus's. It's Jesus's. And so the accountability of leaders and pastors is that we are accountable to Jesus. 
I love it. In, in 1 Peter 5, it says, um, you know, we're just waiting for the chief shepherd. We're just like the little under shepherds, but there's a chief shepherd, Jesus, who we're waiting for, who we're accountable to. All right, here's the thing. There's a lot in our culture that's going around when it comes to pastors and, and people mocking and really saying, oh, these celebrity pastors, this and this and this and this and this. Here's the thing. Everyone who carries that title will have to be accountable to the living God. Every one of us. And so when we look at this, Paul is very serious. And today, if I feel like I'm on that, 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 that soapbox, like kind of preaching, like, yes, I am, because I'm preaching myself too, friends. We're all accountable to this, and we want to be in alignment with what God's word says. Because here's what he says, Acts 20, um, 29 through 30. Why is it so important that Paul takes these leaders aside? He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. See, what's the twisted things? We've talked about it before. When we, start, when we get away from the gospel, when we start to make it about me, 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 when we start to make it about what I can do, how I can serve God instead of what God has done for us in Jesus and making Jesus the hero of the story, we want to make ourselves the hero story. That's the twisted things. Because what does he say? He says, they lead you, they draw you away, the disciples after who? Them. If you're really going to be a follower of Jesus, you got to follow me. No, no, no. If you're going to be a real follower of Jesus, you follow Jesus. <laughs> any good pastor, any good leader is going to point you to Christ. He's the hero, not that leader, not that pastor. Jesus is the hero. That's what a good pastor does. I'm here. I'm just showing you who the hero is. I'm going to point you to him, okay? And so that's what he's talking about here. He's saying there's going to be people who are going to come in who are going to make it about themselves. And so what are the traits of a godly leader? Well, Paul gives us three in today's text, okay? So we're going to break it down in three ways. Tears, trials, trust. Tears, trials, trust. So the first one is um, tears. And so we're going to look at verses uh, 18 through 19, the first part there. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. What's Paul saying here? Well, at first he says, I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. So what we see here is there's a transparency in Paul's leadership. Paul was not above the people. He's not outside of the people. He was with the people. He was among the people. He wasn't hanging out in the green room saying, I'll be there when it's convenient for me. He said, no, I'm living among you. I'm among the people. Who should that remind us of? Who is the one who came to be among the people? Who's the true leader that I was talking about? Jesus. Right? Jesus. John 1, it says that, that he came, and, and, and basically he says it, he set up his tent among us. That's, that's the literal translation. It's like in John 1, it says that he 
he came and he tabernacled among us. He, he came and he, he set up shop among us. God came and hung out with us. Wow. Jesus also says, no, uh, no leader, no person, no servant is greater than the master. No servant's greater than the master. So any leader in the church of God is not above anybody else. It's not the hierarchy system. But there is a flat system that God has set up. He says, you're here. We're serving each other. There are different roles and responsibilities that I give you. Right? There's maybe first among equals type of thing. But at the end of the day, he says, all of us are serving among one another. He says, I served among you the whole time. See, I've been to conferences, and it's like so hard to get to the person who's like up there speaking and all of that stuff, and we build these barriers. I remember I went to one conference, and I was surprised. I walked in. I saw the speakers, the, the worship leaders, everybody pull up in like this black SUV, people opening the door for them, ushering them in. Like they were this, the biggest celebrities that you could have ever seen. Did not talk to one person there. Usher them out because they did their thing. What I want to say is this. Don't, don't look for that type of, of leader. Don't, don't fall into the trap of that's what this is about. Because the Apostle Paul himself says, I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. And what's he doing? He says he's serving the Lord. There's an accountability to God. Who is he serving ultimately? He's serving the Lord. He's serving the Lord. We are under the lordship of Jesus. Jesus is in charge. What's he say? With all humility. I love this. With all humility. Again, he's not above anyone. Um, in his book, Humilitas, ancient historian John Dixon says this. He says, in ancient Rome, Humility was a negative word associated with defeat. Humility before the gods and emperors was advised, but humility towards an equal was regarded as ill-informed. One of the prized virtues was love of honor. Academic research found that a humility revolution took place in the middle of the first century, not only because of Jesus' teaching, Jesus' crucifixion changed the way people understood greatness and humility. The cross of Christ was contrary to the understanding of greatness in the ancient world. There was a humility revolution because of Jesus. And so Paul comes in, he says, I came in with all humility because I'm serving the Lord. Psalm 25, 9 says, He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his ways. But next it says he does this with tears. Now this word tears, for me, I was thinking about it this week. It is loaded. It's packed full with information. It's one word, but there's a lot to learn from it. Because I was thinking about tears this week. See, for some of us, I've heard before that, that Paul, he was like this A-type personality leader, hard-charging person, all of that stuff. I've heard this said about the Apostle Paul, and so it's been used by some leaders to say, well, that's why I am that way. 
That's why I just drive really hard, drive people in the ground, kind of leave people in the dust. That's why I do it. Because I'm just like Paul. And I'm like, have you read the book of Acts? Have you read the Bible? Have you read his letters? That's not Paul. Paul says with tears. With tears. See, the picture we get is someone who was weeping because of joy. Joy. You ever had tears of joy before that just came upon you? Like, I can't believe this is happening. Tears of joy when you see people's lives change, when good things are happening for people, and you're like, that is awesome. Tears of joy. We see tears of, of pain. Right? He says that, that the, the, he, he, he received intense trials from the Jews. Now, why was it important that he said that? Because it was from his own people. It's from his own people. There were people that, 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 that were coming after him, that, that were, were with him, and they were his own people. And they're coming to, to, to try and kill him. We see that Paul, his life was so wrapped up with the people that, that he was filled with tears when they would go through difficult trials. See, when God changes you, you become more like Jesus, and Jesus wept. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I, I will put it within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from, you, uh, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You know what happens when you have a heart? You start to feel things. You start to feel things. Things that you didn't feel before because, you know, I was a little tougher before. I didn't really have, I had some, some guards up all around me. But when you start to feel things, you have a new heart. And you start to have a heart for things that you didn't have a heart for before. And what happened in Paul was that God radically changed his life. Like we talked about before in the book of Acts, we see that he was persecuting the church, ready to kill the people within the church. Now he's shepherding and, and, and willing to die for the people in the church. You see what's happened in his life? He's becoming more like Jesus. Jesus wept. Isaiah 53.3 uh, says that Jesus was a man of sorrows. You ever think about that? Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was weeping all the time. We get that picture of, of, of that scripture with, with Lazarus where Jesus wept. But, but here's the thing. These are not self-absorbed tears about how difficult his life is whining about all the things that he has to do for God. No, he was wrapped up in the lives of others, and these were tears that when he knows that his life is wrapped up with others, there were sorrows, there were joys that came with it. Understanding that there's weddings and there's funerals. There's child dedications, there's baptisms. He was talking about the life of a real pastor. Earlier on in our church, I remember there was a, there was a lady that sat here. She accepted Christ here. In one month span, saw her son get baptized. We baptized her son. Three weeks later, we were doing her funeral. Tears. One moment, tears of joy. The next moment, tears of sorrow. 
The Apostle Paul is urging these leaders, saying this is what your life is going to be wrapped up with. See, it's not just Paul who, who feels this way. It's anybody who takes on the mantle of leadership in God's church. Second, it's trials. Look at verses 19 through 21. And with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why are these trials coming to Paul? Well, um, it says because he was just being obedient to Jesus. There's a commitment to the gospel. And, and how did Paul respond? Well, it says in verse 20 that he says this, I did not shrink back. I didn't shrink back. I, I didn't cover up and, and change the truth. I just stepped into it and said, this is what it is. I, I am the messenger I'm just here delivering the mail. I'm not writing the mail. I'm here to deliver the mail. Here's the thing. I don't know why. My dog hates mailmen. Hates them. He, it's like he could sniff them out. He sees their uniform. He hates them. He will bark and scream and just get, go crazy when the mailman comes. And here's the thing. The Apostle Paul is talking about wolves. They're going to come in. You know what? Wolves did not like the mailman. When the mailman's gone, I'm good. I'm going to come in there. But when the mailman's there, didn't like the mailman. Going to bite the mailman, right? Like, don't like what you have to say. Romans 1.16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. See, Paul, he experienced uh, different trials during his time of preaching the gospel. Um, he says, testifying both to the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God. Now, why is this important? Because he's saying both Jew and Greek are in the same boat. Paul Jew, it was a Jewish man. He grew up Jewish. He, he understood the laws of God. He understood the teachings of God. But he, he, he lived in a way where he thought he knew God, and so he was better than everybody else. That's what had him persecuting the church. I know God. You don't know God. I'm going to tell you who God really is. But what we find out is that the Apostle Paul was in the same boat as the Greek. He didn't know God like he thought he did. And so God had to come and radically rescue him. And he, Paul had to repent or turn from his ideas about God, from what he thought about God, because God was wrapped up in the person of Jesus. And for him as a Jewish man to believe that God could become man, that God could die on a cross, that God could forgive him of his sins and that God was the ultimate sacrifice from the Old Testament that they've been looking for the whole time. He had to turn away from himself and turn to God, toward God. Like we've seen in the book of Acts, the same thing is happening in the Greek life. They had to turn from their idols, like we talked about last week, what they were used to from everything that they thought God was, wrapped up in Jesus, See, what this is, is God saying, the playing field is level. Some of you might have grown up in church. Others of you might not have. 
but everything is level ground at the foot of the cross. See, it starts with the bad news that we were in rebellion against the living God and must turn from our ways, from what we believe about God, to the living God, the true God. Right, all of us. It's a call for all of us to come. And so Paul says he experienced extreme trials because he was preaching this word, because he was telling people about this, that it was, verse 21, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a general faith, but a specific one, a faith that holds tightly to Jesus and Jesus alone. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 25 says, for Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What is Paul coming in there preaching? He's preaching what seems like foolishness to people who thought that wisdom was something else. He came in preaching something that looked weak to people who thought they knew God, but was really strong. He came in preaching Jesus, a crucified Jesus, Jesus on the cross. And what this was, was that he experienced trials. Uh, lastly, trust. Look at verses 22 through 24. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account uh, my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and my ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What does trust in God look like? Well, number one, it says that he is constrained by the Spirit. Uh, this word there is deo, that is the word for constrained here. And basically what he's saying is, I am bound to God. Like God will not, like I, I am bound to God. Um, it's much like in marriage. You are bound to that person. I remember when I first got married, I was used to just kind of doing my own thing. And I remember waking up one morning, going to uh, the store, and my wife calls me on the phone. She said, where are you at? I just went to the store. Just went out. She said, you got to tell me where you're going. I was worried about you. Sorry. I'm just going to go pick up some milk, you know. <laughs> Something I did before, you know. Kinda... I, had, I had to start asking permission. Like, is it okay if I go here? You, what, that's what happens when you get married. And what happens when you're bound to the Holy Spirit? You got to, Lord, is this where you want me to go? Is this what you want me to do? See, see Paul was on a mission. He was on his way to Jerusalem. I got to get there for Pentecost. What happens? Holy Spirit says, you turn. You turn, pull in here. You got to go back. You got to go over there. You got to go talk to these people. They need you. Oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. You ever had divine interruptions that happened throughout your day? You were on your way. You, were, you had a mission. You were, you were ready. I'm going over here. And then all of a sudden, you feel something in you that's like, I got to go back over there. 
I got to go do this thing. See, here's the thing. If, if you're a Christian today, you're bound to God. I'm bound to God. What, God, what do you want me to do? And so the Apostle Paul says, I'm constrained by the Spirit. Listen, not knowing what will happen to me there. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going on, but I'm just bound to whatever he wants to happen. But the thing I do know is that he told me that there's going to be imprisonment and afflictions. They await me. Bad things are going to happen. But you know what? I'm bound by God. I'm supposed to go there. That's where I'm going to go. And lastly, he finishes out. He says, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. If only I may finish, you see it? My course. That's somebody else's course. I'm not running over there in that lane or that lane or that lane. No, 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 no. God's given me a course to run. I'm bound to whatever he's calling me to do. It's going to look different. You might not be a leader in a church, but you are bound, if you're a Christian, to the Holy Spirit. And what that means is that there is a race that he's calling you to run. And, and that that's the calling to, to finish the race that I received from the Lord Jesus. So that when I meet him face to face, say, I ran your race. I did my part. I was accountable to you. In his book, Finishing Strong, Steve Farrar compared three preachers that gained great notoriety throughout the U.S. And so this happened in the 40s. He said all three drew huge crowds, heard them preach. These preachers were Chuck Templeton, uh, Ron Clifford, and Billy Graham. Uh, for our rights, he says, you've heard of Billy Graham, but what about Chuck Templeton and Bron Clifford? He says Chuck Templeton, uh, one seminary uh, president, after hearing him preach to thousands, says, most gifted and talented young man in America today in preaching. Five years later, Templeton left the ministry to, uh, and in 1950 no longer believed in Jesus Christ. Ron Clifford, at the age of 25, said he touched so many lives, so many lives of people, influential in leaders' lives, uh, set more attendance records, American history for any clergyman. National leaders vied for his attention. By 1954, lost his family, his ministry, his health, and then his life. For our ends, he says, in 1945, three young men with extraordinary gifts were preaching the gospel to multiply thousands across this nation. Within 10 years, only one of them was still on track for Christ. Friends, it's like my, my, my friend told me, he says, truth and time go hand in hand. Truth and time go hand in hand. And here's the thing I want to know at the end of the day. You can gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul. And that's for all of us. That's for all of us. I want to be the one who's at the end saying, I love Jesus. I love Jesus more and more. And as, as a pastor, if you call Grace City your, your church home, as a pastor of Grace City, my hope for you is the same. That by the end of it, through the trials that you may face, through the things that you go through in life, by the end, you say, I love Jesus more and more and more. So just some takeaways. What can we take away from today's text? And what can we learn? Three things as we wrap up. First one, pray for your leaders. Pray for your leaders. 
There are leaders that are behind the scenes in this church, and I am so, so thankful. See, I don't walk alone in this. I don't walk alone in this. There are staff people, there are deacons, there are team leaders, there are a bunch of people. We're going to be gathering December uh, 4th. We're going to be getting together, praying together, talking about things, but, but pray for us. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. And I want to tell you, it's a ministry of tears, friends. Ministry is not easy. Your, your life is wrapped up in, in the lives of others in a unique way. And like I said, we're in a season of praying to God, saying, God, you appoint those elders. You appoint the ones who are to be in that position. Because at the end of the day, this is God's church. And so we want to be a praying people. So please, please, please keep us in your prayers. Next, seek the true leader. One of the questions that you have to ask yourself again and again is this. Is this God-centered or man-centered? Like that's the, the, the thing that I can encourage you with. When you're listening to things or like discerning things, you're like, is this, is this putting God at the center or is this putting man at the center? People. Just people-centered. Because I ask myself that all the time because at the end of the day, is God the hero of this? Paul David Tripp says this. He says, the next time you face the unexpected, a moment of difficulty you really don't want to go through, remember that such a moment doesn't picture a God who has forgotten you, but one who is near to you and doing an, a very good thing. He's rescuing you from thinking that you can live the life you were meant to live while relying on the inadequate resources of your wisdom, experience, righteousness, and strength. And he is transforming you into a person who lives a life shaped by radical, God-centered faith. Radical, God-centered faith. See, friend, that, that's what we want. That's what, that's what I hope for you, is that you live with a radical, God-centered faith. Because that's the gospel. That's the good news. That you don't have to rely on inadequate resources of your own wisdom, experience, righteousness, or strength. We can't do it. Puts us at the end of ourselves. But we remember that God is the hero. Lastly, trust in God's leading. Again, verse 22. Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. What does that look like in your life? What does that look like in my life? What does it look like to be constrained and saying, you know what, God, you're in my life now. You've moved in. And so I want to go in your direction. I want to go on your path. Lead me, Lord. See, here's the thing. How can, how can anyone stand? How can I stand? How can anyone stand as a godly leader? Because if you hung out with me long enough, you would see that there's holes in my life. There's holes in my life. Every single person that stands up here with, with, it, with this, there's holes in their life. They're not a perfect person. See, all of us have shortcomings and failures. So how can somebody be a godly leader? It's when that person looks to the true leader whose tears, trials, and trust in the Father's plan made a way for us 
And in the life of that leader, it becomes the mantra of this, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so tightly and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Hey, there are people who start churches. They say they're the founding pastor, whatever it is. No, 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 no. Ultimately, there's only one founder. There's people who say, man, here's my way. Here's, you should follow me. No, no, no. There's only one perfecter. Only one perfecter. Jesus. Looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I never understood despising the shame. I'm like, despising the shame. What does that mean? What does that mean? Here's what it means. He did not think that it was too much to be, filled, to be looked upon with shame. He didn't think it was a big deal for him to be looked upon in shame. Why? So that for the joy that was set before him, he could go to the cross for you and me. He put himself in a, in a position of shame in the culture of going up on that cross. And he said, it's, not a, it's, it's okay. It's not a big deal. If I look like the loser, if I look like the one who goes up there, it's not a big deal. Because what is a big deal is you and me. And he says, I'm willing to do that for you. He did that for us. He's the true leader. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your grace, for your kindness, for your goodness. Help us to see you more clearly. Lord, may we be moved to tears when we think of you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.